Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. We live in a time of propaganda. I don't know how else to put it. Right now, people don't discuss their disagreements, listen to opposing ideas, and use research and evidence to evaluate and come to reasonable and nuanced solutions to problems. I wish we did, but what we do instead is pick a side and say that everyone who isn't on our side is bad and wrong. The consequence is that we are in the midst of massive historical changes to the way we live that require nimble, intelligent, and iterative problem solving, and we're paralyzed and unable to enact even some of the first experimental solutions to the issues that threatened overwhelm us. Sorry to be so dire. <laughs> this is Adam, coming to you from Los Angeles, and I should probably stop watching the news. And in fact, I want this podcast to be the opposite. I don't want to spread propaganda. I want to solve problems and spread hope. So on this episode, we're going to talk about some of the problems with organic viticulture. And I know this may be shocking coming from me, but yes, organic has issues. That doesn't mean organic viticulture is bad. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And that doesn't mean it's pointless. On the contrary, I've never been more committed to organic viticulture as the best form of viticulture. And I believe literally every vineyard should be farmed organically. But there will be no greenwashing in this episode. <laughs> to make the organic future of wine a reality, we have some problems to solve, and we'll never solve them by pretending they don't exist. We need to honestly and openly discuss our own failings so that we can learn how to improve and find solutions. So I'm incredibly grateful to my guest for this episode, Lee Bartholomew, for being willing to openly discuss some of these issues with me. Lee has an incredible resume uh, that we get into on the podcast that includes work at some of the most revered and renowned wineries literally around the world in almost every continent. She's a leader in the Oregon wine industry, and she's been a viticulturalist for decades with an enormous amount of experience working in vines. Lee openly and intelligently articulates many of the less than perfect realities and compromises of organic and biodynamic viticulture while at the same time aspiring to continue to farm organically. She simultaneously acknowledges the challenges and points the way to solving many of the problems she brings up. Lee is my hero. It takes courage to come on the Organic Wine Podcast and talk about some of the problems with organic. But so many great questions still remain for us to answer, and this conversation with Lee Bartholomew provides the foundation for beginning to answer them. Enjoy. Lee, thanks so much for joining. Welcome. My pleasure, Adam. Thank you for having me. It's really lovely to talk to Oregon, one of my favorite states. Um, and and I kind of want to just start by going through your resume a little bit, because it's impressive, I have to say. Director, you're right now, and you can correct me if at any point I say something that's not true. But, Will um, do. <laughs> <laughs> Director of Viticulture at Results Partners, Vineyard Development and Management Company. Yes. You are co-owner of Dominio 4, a winery there based in the Columbia Gorge, I believe. Actually, our winery is in the Willamette Valley, but we have two vineyards, one in the Willamette Valley and one in the Columbia Gorge. And the one in the Columbia Gorge is our original vineyard. Okay. That's what I was thinking of. Okay. And then you've also served as chair of the Oregon Wine Board and you continue to serve on the Viticulture Committee, it looks like. Yep. 
And Perfect. your past experience pretty much reads like a greatest hits of wineries from the top wine regions in the world. Givry Chambertin in Burgundy, Cane and Robert Mondavi in Napa, Saracen in New Zealand, Calatera in Colchagua Valley, Chile, Andrew Will in Washington, Archery Summit in Oregon. And I stumbled upon you just for some reason through Winderly, which probably isn't as well known as the others, but a lovely little Oregon winery practicing biodynamic viticulture in their estate vineyards. And uh, (laughs) and so after all of this wine besotted globetrotting, you ended up in Oregon. And was that always home for you or is there just something special about Oregon? Oh, it was not always home to me. My dad was in the Navy, and so we moved every three years. And so there was no place that was actually home. Wherever my parents were at the time (laughs) was where home (laughs) was. So when I went off to college, we were living overseas. We were in London, and my grandparents lived on the Oregon coast. So Oregon seemed like the closest thing to what home would be or my you know, residence would be. And so I went to University of Oregon and met my future husband there as we were freshmen in the dorms we met. And um, yeah, he's from Oregon. So he's from Salem. And we kind of fell in love with wine at the same time together. And it seemed like the logical place to live is here in Oregon in the Willamette Valley, if you are a lover of wine and a lover of Pinot Noir, especially. So so it all worked out that way. So that is that is a special love of yours, Pinot Noir? It is, though I think um, I don't have a, a favorite variety or a favorite wine to drink. I think there are lots of wines that um, are delicious. And I certainly, on a, on a more regular basis, choose to drink Pinot Noir than some of the other varieties, mostly because it's... Um, it can be so many different things, you yeah. know, depending on who the producer is and where in the world it's coming from, that it's always really interesting and intriguing. But yeah. um, but it's I, I can't put one on a pedestal above any of the others. <laughs> <laughs> what about to grow or to work with in the vineyard? Do you have a favorite there? Mm, well, it wouldn't be Pinot Noir. <laughs> Pinot Noir. <laughs> So I've heard and experienced. It's so tricky, you know, which I think there is something really interesting about that, especially to the inquisitive mind. Um, Mm. How do you do it and how do you do it well? And how do you do it um, in harmony with Mother Nature in any given year? And every year that's a little different. And I think that's really exciting. And it means my job is absolutely never boring because no year, no growing season looks like any other. Um, and that's not just a Pinot Noir thing. That's an Oregon thing, I think, more than anything. It's it's a farming yeah. thing, but it's a farming in Oregon, especially thing where our vintages can look so dramatically different. But um, yeah, I, I think Pinot's tough to grow, but everything's everything's tough to grow. You have to be paying attention no matter what you're growing or where. That that was one of my jokes to uh, sort of give California a little bit of shit was, you know, the difference between Oregon and California is that Oregon actually has vintages. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Very true. (laughs) Um, But you, you guys are growing Tempranillo as well, right? 
We do, yep. In our Columbia Gorge vineyard out in a little tiny town called Mosier, we grow Tempranillo and Syrah and Viognier. And what, what was the, I mean, I can understand, well, I mean, I can understand pairing Viognier and Syrah, but what, uh-huh. what was the decision making that went into those three? You know, it was looking at the climate and what the growing degree days look like and what the climate feels like. And then at the time, just what wines we were really enjoying drinking and really intrigued by Tempranillo and what Tempranillo might be like in the new world compared to the old world. Um, And I think it was where our interest was. We always, I think, thought we would plant a whole bunch of different things and try out a bunch. And this was where we would start and um and you know things like water rights and stuff like that limit how much how much land you're going to plant and so we we stuck with those original three and realized too that it was much more interesting to have different clones of the same variety so we could start to play with that and dig a little bit deeper and understand some of those differences on the site and just understand best how to farm in a region where we weren't living. So we've never actually lived in the gorge. My parents live on our vineyard property out there. Well, it's their vineyard property. We we farm and manage the vineyard. Um, Got it. And so we don't live on the property. And so trying to understand how to manage a farm from a distance is also something that um, we've spent years trying to master. <laughs> <laughs> how far of a drive is it for you from where you do live? Is it like an hour? Two hours. Two hours, yeah. yeah. Yep, it's two hours. So it's just far enough to make it difficult to do in a day, but not impossible. So it's not too Interesting. bad. Long uh, enough to listen to a podcast and be happy that you've got the quiet time on the road. Oh, good. I love that. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I listen. I mean, so it's funny because I think totally different setup, but being a winemaker in Los Angeles means that, you know, any drive you take is a two hour drive to get right. to vines or vineyards or anything that you know, where grapes of any sort. So that's really interesting to me. I'd love to, <laughs> we, we might have to dig into to more about how you have learned to manage that. Um, yep. But I, let's just start with a, 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 just a funny question I thought of that you at Results Partners must encounter people with a lot of money and very little experience with farming. Is that true sometimes? Uh, it's, yep, it's true. There are people who are often coming to farming as a second or third career and just learning and really interested in learning. Um, so yes, yeah, it, and it can you, be true, but not always. Okay. Right. Right. Of course. I'm sure. I just, I imagine that that isn't uncommon and that I, I'm now curious if you spend a lot of your time trying to talk people out of becoming a vineyard, <laughs> man, a vineyard owner. Um, I I have I try not to talk anybody into or out of anything just give them all the options and <laughs> make sure people understand because I think you know and this is like not the fun part of the wine industry but farming grapes um is not an economically not it's not a way to make money or even keep the money you have unless you know especially if you're just a farmer farming right. grapes is becoming a proposition where it costs more to farm than most people are making in their fruit sales in a year. And I think that's the next big reckoning of the wine industry is trying to figure out how to create an equitable situation for people who are just farmers, you know, just growers, 
versus people who are growers and they're putting their own fruit into a bottle because that's the only way you can really make it work financially. Other than that, it's typical that you're going backward um, from one year to the next. So as long as people are going into that, and I and I honestly tell that to everybody that I work with, you know, and look them deeply in the eyes and say, please listen to me. This is a wonderful industry. There's so many great things about it, but go into it knowing that this is not how you're going to build your retirement fund or even keep your retirement fund in good shape. You know, this is something that you do for the joy of growing grapes and for being part of a really wonderful industry. Um, so it, in that way, yes, I suppose I do try to talk people out of it all the time. <laughs> is it something that can work if you are thinking about it from a real estate investment standpoint where you're, yeah. you're purchasing a piece of land, the grapes will help cover the taxes and costs of owning that land while the land appreciates? And For sure, yeah. Okay, so yep. if you if you think of it more from that standpoint and buy it from that standpoint, it can be... It can make more sense financially. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. And especially, you know, Oregon's doing, um, you know, I think doing pretty well in the in the world's eye of how a, a wine growing region, you know, success. Um, it's, it's pretty successful and people are looking at Oregon more and more as a wonderful place to grow grapes and make really, really fabulous wines. And so having an asset in the, in, you know, especially here in the Willamette Valley where this is where people think of as being our primary grape growing region, even though we make wonderful wines, you know, also in the South and in the Columbia Gorge and in the Columbia Valley. When people think of Oregon, they think of the Willamette Valley and Pinot Noir. And so um, we're seeing land costs appreciate it right now as a pretty steady market for, for, um, for vineyard sales, it appears anyway, and so I yeah. think, yeah, as an asset, it seems to be a great, a great right. one to have. So yes, you're right. No, okay, yeah. no, I just, yeah, I, I just wondered, but yep. Um, so Oregon, I since we, you were just mentioning what's going on in Oregon, um, I mean, what are, I guess maybe my my question is, since you have such a, a breadth of experience, especially coming, you know, having spent some time in Burgundy. What do you see as the differences? I mean, people often say Burgundian style, but do you think Oregon is up there on the scale of of or uh, of Burgundy? I mean, from what you've seen, can you compare those two? Is it apples and oranges? Is it just two different things, or or can you make any comparisons? You know, it's really funny. We have a tasting group, and we get together. Oh, well, I don't know, almost monthly, I would say, um, and often recently and we're doing it all virtually so these are zoom get togethers where we're chatting about wine and tasting wines blind and often you know people are just bringing something interesting they want the group to taste it's blind we don't even know the variety the variety that we're tasting where in the world it's from um any of that and oftentimes and we just start out with is it new world or old world you know and hope that we can choose that correctly. And I would say, oh, we're probably a little better than 50-50 on that, <laughs> but often we even get that part wrong. Right. So if you just go to Pinot Noir and say New World, Old World, you know, Burgundy or Oregon, um, it's a close you can call. be fooled. Yeah, you can yeah. be fooled so easily. So I think it's mostly about, you know, what's happening with the climate in any given year. Um, Oregon is 
Oregon is Oregon. And I think for a lot of years, we've tried to say, oh, isn't this vintage very Burgundian-like? Or isn't this producer very Burgundian-like? Um, which makes sense because that's what we have all been trying to emulate for so many years. But Oregon is old enough now and with enough skilled vineyard managers and winemakers that I think starting to say um, not how Burgundian something might be, but how, how Oregonian it might be is kind of an exciting time for us. I think that's, yeah. that's what we're striving for, at least in part, yeah. you know, without trying to forget the roots of Pinot and, and the amazing wines that are produced in Burgundy, but trying to figure out how to, how to have us say how Oregonian of us, you know? <laughs> so it might be too early to say Burgundy is dead. Oh but... yeah, no, absolutely not. <laughs> it's like blasphemy right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love, um, I love that. So here's a question for you. you do you consider yourself a scientist? Um, when it comes to viticulture, I'll say. I mean, when... Yes, and I think scientists from a practitioner's point of view, um, you know, I spend enough time, like many of us in the industry here, since it's small, a lot of us are part of our research committees and um, reading, you know, we do a lot of reading research papers so that the industry can give feedback to the different universities and researchers on different research projects. Um, and I kind of feel like our job or my job when I'm reading some of these is to make sure that there's something in not all of them, because not all science should be about the practical, but making sure that we're not forgetting about uh, what the research means to, you know, what a person's going to do in their vineyard tomorrow or next year or a couple years from now. And some of science needs to be basic science where we're just learning about some of the basics of plant growth. Um, and development that we don't yet understand about the genetics. Um, but a lot of it, I think, needs to be focused on how can we do better and be better farmers tomorrow. Um, so yeah, I think I think of myself as a scientist, but not a basic, uh, you know, um, future thinking scientist, more a practitioner scientist of a person who, who can help make sure that it's practical for tomorrow and make okay. us better right now. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting distinction. I am I, I've been just toying with this idea in my head of what it means to be a scientist because I know I'm I'm inherently biased. You know, I mean, obviously this is the organic wine podcast, and I feel like there's an obvious implicit bias in just <laughs> in that, and mm -hmm. that because and and what I guess I I as I was thinking about that, I realized, and you know, at least in my opinion, it's to be a scientist is to be committed to. The pursuit of truth above any one you know philosophy or approach to whatever the science is and that you might because at any point you have to be willing to admit you know a, this this something was wrong over here and there's an issue with this there and you have to be able to see clearly and any bias gives you that prism of of you know prejudice that you might not be able to see what's what's accurate and real in front of you. Um, and I say all that to just say, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about this because I, I asked you, you know, I, I think I proposed this as asking you to talk about some of the issues with organic and biodynamic viticulture. Um, mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I, I don't want that to, I'm giving this as a, a context because I don't want anybody who's listening to think of you as like 
if if you are bringing up issues that you're not the the bad guy or the antagonist in the story of the organic wine podcast you. quite the opposite actually the way i see it is we can never grow or improve without confronting our weaknesses and failings and you know if we don't get to know these problems we can never solve them effectively yeah um and you're someone who comes with years of many different kinds of viticultural experience and can talk about these things with nuance and without those implicit biases that I, you know, obviously bring to it. So, I, you know, thank you again for being willing. <laughs> You're um, welcome. And, and, and I, but it, you know, I, I, and then a couple of things. So from your results partner's bio, it's, it says, uh, you know, about you, well-versed in organic and biodynamic farming practices. Lee's philosophy is simple. I feel that beyond respecting the land, these methods also yield healthier and more expressive fruit. Um, and then from your from, from your website, the Dominio 4, um, you, you talk about you are using practices that will ensure that the vineyard will remain viable and healthy for future generations. So... Mm-hmm. I guess my first big question is how are you, how are you farming your home estate vineyard? Yep. So um, our vineyard out in the Columbia Gorge um, has been farmed organically since we planted in '02, um, and biodynamically for much of that time. Though, like I said, trying to learn how to farm biodynamically from a distance or farm at all from a distance is difficult and asking your mom and dad to wake up at four in the morning to stir some preps to spray out on the vines just <laughs> became more and more difficult over the years. I can imagine. Yeah. So, um, um, and then our vineyard here in, um, in Carlton area has been farmed organically for the last year, so for our the first three years of its life, we used some contact herbicides so that we could grow the vines without having the competition of weeds and things like that that we were quite worried about. And so we're um, transitioning that into organics over the last over the last year, and that feels really good. Uh, but the problem that we have is that that vineyard is also on a hazelnut orchard, um, and hazelnuts are in, a difficult plant to farm organically. So we're trying to understand how we can transition that over without making the life of the guy who's doing the farming of the hazelnut completely, you know, crazy. So that one's, that one's a long-term goal. And so I think we, my husband and myself, Patrick, we have the idea of what our aspirations are, and we know that we're not going to get there tomorrow, but we're working toward, you know, the right place for for everybody you know on our pieces of property so that we can all learn and grow and continually strive to get better i think that's our main goal yeah i I mean so let's talk about some of the issues i mean it would be interesting to to talk about hazelnuts i mean specifically i know that's a big crop there in oregon and historically um i mean what are those challenges and I mean, specifically with hazelnuts that you know, but yeah. you take it further than that. I mean, it sounds like you're, it sounds like I'll just contextualize. It sounds like your goal and aspiration personally is to, to get to organic minimally or biodynamic yep. viticulture. Um, so I'd love you to even talk about why that is, but, but then what are the realities in getting there? And, and let's start with yeah. hazelnuts. <laughs> yeah. So hazelnuts are tough because 
of the way they harvest hazelnuts, and that is to let the nuts fall to the ground and then sweep them up um, yeah. with a big vacuum, essentially. And so having any kind of grass mm. or cover crop growing on the ground makes that really difficult for them. So what they like to do is just keep a bare earth that they can then sweep up the nuts uh, from. And that is the problem. <laughs> that means Roundup, I imagine, right? It means so many different kinds of herbicides that, mm. you know, it's numerous different kinds, pre-emergence, post-emergence, contacts, you know, and a little bit of everything, a lot of 2,4-D, um, no. okay. you know, so it's just, uh, it's difficult. Yeah. It's difficult. Um, and is that, is that because it's just not economically viable to like put out tarps to catch the nuts and things like that? Yeah. You know, it's, um, 30 acres of right. hazelnuts. And so trying to do that, I think that there are, you know, there are researchers at OSU who are working on this right now. And there are farmers who are farming hazelnuts organically, but typically they're smaller acreages. We right. lease our our hazelnuts out to a, a a hazelnut farmer in the area, and that's what's been done. You know, we purchased the property four years ago. That's what the woman Joan, who we purchased the property from, was doing also. And so, um, you know, maybe there's a place in our future where we become hazelnut farmers, but I I don't think so. I think you know we like the guy who's doing the farming. We just need to together walk into the future of what hazelnut farming looks like and try to. Um, try to find a way around some of the issues, um, you know, that can become compatible with our farming philosophies. Uh, but, you know, I think we're not as dogmatic of, of organic farmers as we could be, and we're trying to learn and get better. And I think if we can raise the, um, the awareness or just the possibility that farming them organically on a larger scale can be possible, then I feel like that's a win. You know, yeah. maybe if um, if two or three other people or maybe the farmer who's farming our hazelnuts realizes that if he bought a piece of equipment and I don't know, I'm just making this up, bought a piece of equipment or found the right cover crop that's really low growing that still could be um, managed through, you know, using the same harvesting equipment that they have. Maybe we could just get better slowly, but on a larger scale, I think is intriguing. I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like. Well, I'll, I'll pose it as a question. So knowing what you know about everything related to viticulture and uh, in general agriculture, why, why, do you, why is organic and biodynamic and aspiration a goal for, for what you do? Um, because, you know, I think when I go to the grocery store and choose what kind of vegetables and fruit I'm going to buy, they're organic. You know, I think about what I'm consuming, what my kids are consuming, what I think. Um, I mean, does that you know, have to wanna... do with your knowledge of soil science, or just your oh. your knowledge of the of the actual sprays that are used and how harmful they are to your health and others' health, or or what? I, yeah, yeah. Just... nope. Yeah, it's the latter. You know, it's the sprays that are being used, how they're going to impact my health and other people's health, the health of the people who are applying them. Um, but mostly people who are consuming the crop, you know, if you're, con if you're consuming it and you're actually ingesting some of these things that have a pre-harvest interval of zero days, you know, and you say, okay, well, you mean I can spray this chemical on the plant and you can eat it wow. this afternoon. It just doesn't seem right. You know, it just seems like, 
um, without any science, it just yeah. doesn't feel quite right, you know? And so I, that's a big one. And certainly organics does not mean that we're not spraying anything, as you know, you know, we're still spraying stuff. Some of right. it's not great, you know, sulfur. I don't like smelling like sulfur all summer long. And it's one of the organic chemicals that we can use this right. last year when we were trying to figure out, you know, which of our chemicals we use at results partners for our vineyard clients, which ones we would need to use NIOSH certified masks because we gave all of our masks directly to the hospital. As soon as everything started happening with COVID, you know, we just collected everything that we had, we gave them to the hospitals and then we said, all right, now what are we going to do? <laughs> you know, we don't have anything left for spring. Um, let's remove every chemical that we have in our spray program that requires using these NIOSH approved masks. Damn. And the only chemicals that I had on my list of chemistries that I was going to use that even required them were the organic ones. And oh, so, such as um, what? which ones? Uh, I think it was Serenade. It was the biologicals. Okay. Yeah. So, which makes sense. You know, you've got these biologicals. You don't want to be um, breathing them in. Big- yeah. Yep. Right. So, um, yeah. So I, I think that's eye opening too. And we all need to remember that just because we're using organic chemicals doesn't mean that they're not also impactful on our health, but, um, but you have to start what, somewhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, what is the, so given that they do have health impacts, why are they, are they better or are they not better or, or why, you know, why would we want to use those and, you know, why would we want to use a biological instead of a, a synthetic? Um, they, um, well, let's see a couple. So your question had a couple parts. So yeah, sorry. why are they? Yep. That's all right. <laughs> why are they better? I think, you know, for one, the way they're produced typically is, different from conventional. So the conventional would be produced in, um, created in a lab somewhere. I won't say produced because they're all produced in a factory somewhere, but created in the lab where the biologicals are something that's naturally formed on the earth anyway, that we are just gathering and using um, and maybe gathering in a, in a processing facility somewhere, of course. I mean, not all. it or something. Yeah. Yep. And so, it's something that's naturally occurring anyway. Um, you know, we're using this trichoderma product now for trunk disease control. And that's something that's naturally occurring in the world. And we just, we meaning science figured out a way to use something that's naturally here anyway, to be antagonistic to something else that's naturally here anyway. So we're kind of using the natural world um, and creating, creating these, uh, wars <laughs> you know where the good guy's gonna win um right. right in our vineyards and so i think that that feels like a and i keep saying this word feel and it shouldn't really be so much about how it feels but that the way that feels is that it's better when you're using something that's already in the world here versus, yeah, yeah yeah already here versus creating something um out of out of science you know, out of uh, different um, processes to be antagonistic to the things we need to get rid of. So certainly, though, when you look at the toxicology reports of some of these different chemistries, and I sit on the live board, which is our sustainability program here in Oregon for low-impact viticulture and enology, and we 
um, have a list of chemistries that we allow people to use. And the list of chemistries is, um, is decided upon by putting all of the products through a software program uh, called um, the pesticide risk tool. And it gives us a, depending on how much we say we're gonna use, you know, it gives us a, a toxicology report at the end, you know, after you push all the buttons and get to where you wanna go, it gives you a toxicology report that tells you how impactful each chemistry is on uh, the human population, on earthworms and avian life, on fish, um, you know, and as many toxicology uh, outputs as as they have um, information for. And some of the organic products, Live doesn't just allow any organic product to be used in the Live program. It also has to pass muster through this pesticide risk tool because there are some organic ones that also have high um, high risks for certain, um, um, well, you know, fish or or birds or or for us with you know ingestion or being you know just toxic dermally so i think you know we have to look at all of that but the organic ones certainly more of them are less toxic <laughs> than on the conventional side okay got it like if you look at the the, the pantheon of each you're there it tends to skew less toxic on that side yep. what, it does got it. but it's not just a it's it should not Ever, I think just be a oh, it's OMRI certified, which means it's it's less toxic. I don't think we should think of it that way. I think we have to still be rigorous in our review of chemistries from wherever they may come. Right, I I love that. That's that's a really good point. Um, you so you you did say you were saying feel a lot, and and mm -hmm. you said yeah, you know, I was going to actually ask you about that. It feels really good that you're doing this or that do you think that is based in reality like is there truth behind that or is that or, or are we deluded into feeling really good i mean it sounds like what you just said is there's some there's some evidence that we should feel better about it um generally yeah. speaking although i think we are a little deluded you know to be honest because most people when you tell them that you're farming organically say oh so you're not spraying any pesticides Right. Well, <laughs> no, right. in fact, we're spraying more often, you know, and so we are having a bigger impact environmentally just on our tractor use alone and how many gallons of diesel we're burning and right. our compaction of the soil and the implications on the earthworm population or, you know, on spraying a lot of sulfur and causing more flare ups with mites because we're creating more of an environment where they um, they're it's more conducive, you know, to them thriving. And so there are some things that we do in the vineyard when we're farming organically that just seem to go against the whole idea of what our organic farming is about. You know, we had a vineyard which was set up, it was a really great trial. It was a vineyard that um, was mirrored uh, one side of the vineyard to the other coming down the hill slope with the same clones and rootstock combinations on the east side of the vineyard as the west side coming all the way down about the same size blocks, one half of the vineyard was sprayed conventionally and the other half was sprayed organically. Um, and so we could see the differences in those two side-by-side -side sites. And, you know, the organic side got yellow, the vines got smaller, um, they were, it was weaker, 
there were a lot of things that didn't look as good on the organic side as on the conventionally farmed side. And it wasn't fertilizers because we weren't adding fertilizers. It was just, you know, I think the amount of sulfur that was getting sprayed and the number of times you were passing through with an under the vine cultivator for weeds and and something else that I don't know the answer to yet, but would like to understand better. And so, you know, the the organic side just wasn't thriving like the conventional side was. And I think the jury is out too on whether you were getting better wine quality from one side to the other. But I think more often the organic side had a preference for the wine coming from it, but the vineyard certainly didn't look as healthy. Interesting. Really interesting. Really, really interesting. Um, Where was that again? It's here in the Willamette Valley. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yep. And has it has that gone on? Like, has it been done more than one vintage? Is that an ongoing comparison? Oh, yeah. It was, comparison? well, sadly, it was done for about, oh, 12 years. And then a couple of years ago, the vineyard changed hands and the new owners, you know, didn't Said not to didn't want to continue that. that. Yep. yep. <laughs> so it's no longer like that. But um, huh. but it was a so, really interesting side-by-side. And, and you're saying there no fertilizers on either side were added. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Interesting. So it's just just the whatever program. Yeah. cover crops and spray program or whatever. Correct. Not. Yep. Um, well, since you mentioned undervine cultivars, the cultivation, the the alternative, of course, is an herbicide, right? Correct. Yep. And up and until this last year, yep, yep. Up until this last year, we thought we had a great new organic herbicide that was going to be really helpful in some situations. Um, and then and it, it turned, turned out, out to... that it was spiked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it had Roundup in it. <laughs> it did. <laughs> no uh, wonder why it worked so well. <laughs> no. But yeah, under the vine row cultivation, you know, is what we've mainly been doing, which is, I would say, if you were to give it a grade, it's usually, you know, you get about 80, 85% of what you want to get. And the rest of it, either grows and you just are going to be okay with it because um, because now we're getting more and more comfortable seeing things growing under the vine and not freaking out about them so much. You know, we don't need that perfect right. brown strip. In fact, I think that's becoming something that's more of a turn off to people yeah. than it is like something they want to see. Well, but that was my are... next question. Go ahead. Sorry. There are. I was going to say there are some new things that are coming out too. Like I think the... Um, Weed scientist at Oregon State is just buying this spring uh, something that would be like an under the vine row weed zapper. So it uses electricity to to kill off the green stuff growing underneath the vine row that he's going to trial. And I'm interested in seeing where that goes, um, just because yeah. it means that hopefully we're not every time we run an under the vine row cultivator through the vineyard, you know, you're hitting some trunks underneath the surface of the soil that you just can't see and you wonder how much damage you truly are doing and it's hard to quantify but um i would love to not have to do that right and i guess for people who aren't familiar or haven't watched i mean i'm not familiar as in having done it but just watching videos you you basically have a tractor that drives through with a, a like an arm that extends out under the vine with a sensor on the front of the arm so that when it touches the trunk of the vine, it folds back in quickly and then pops back out once it's past the vine to continue cultivating. So you, you got it. Yep. You sort of have to have that sensitivity. And, and of course, it's a tractor driving through without 
you know, yep. stopping to check every little thing. Yep. And the alternative to that is to pay people to hoe it out, which is obviously labor intensive and probably a lot more costly because of that. You um, got it. Yep. You got it. And, but of course, like you said, you know, if, if you talk to Mimi Castile, um, you know, you don't need to do that. Like that's an unnecessary step to get rid of that under there. Like you, like you're pointing out more and more people are, are saying that, that like, getting rid of that strip under the vines is more aesthetic or, you know, it's yep. not necessarily uh, as important. Although, you know, voles is the one issue that it sounds like until everybody's doing that voles can, you know, like if they're, they're being cultivated out of the vineyard next door, they they might come over to your no cultivation vineyard and then you're in trouble. Yeah, um, though, you know, we see so many voles in cultivated vineyards too. So it's oh. just, they go in a population cycle. I'm not sure we can really beat them um, gotcha. with just the cultivation game, which is good because that just means that we shouldn't be forced to cultivate solely because of voles. Although in some situations where the population gets really high, you just have to, those little field mice are running around in front of you as you walk down a row, you know, you have to do something. I think, though, the next, the, well, a couple of things on the under the vine row management, you know, we're on the cusp of realizing, I think, that cover crops and the seeds that we plant, um, we've used the same ones for so many years because somebody came upon a blend that worked really well here in Oregon, and that's what everybody's been using for 20 years. And we're finally realizing that we should be experimenting with lots of different cover crops, you know, for different reasons, whether it's buckwheat uh, for phosphorus, or if it's, um, you know, clovers or legumes for nitrogen, or right. just other different, different seeds and different combinations of seeds that we should be planting for different reasons. And, you know, maybe finding a way, and this has been hard so far, but finding a way to to sow a really nice seed underneath the vine row that will grow low, that will not be competitive, that will, you know, do all the things we want it to do underneath the vine row. And then, yeah, we can just leave it there um, and not have to worry about it. Sounds like we could kill two birds with that stone too. The hazelnuts might benefit from that awesome. same. Yes, if you're find so that. right. <laughs> all right, people, let's get to work. We got to find right. that. That's <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah, I think a lot of time spent on cover crop seed, um, uh, you know, the, the identification of the right ones would be fantastic. And we finally have in Buzz Seeds a new vineyard specific cover crop company with a woman named Rebecca Sweet who got her degree from OSU looking at native seeds in Oregon. She just last year, maybe two years ago now, started her new company selling cover crop seeds and putting together blends that are vineyard specific. And that's really exciting because that's what we've needed. That's great. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, it sounds like the way things are headed. That's, that's very cool. Yes. Um, well, since we're talking about the soil and uh, let's talk about herbicides and I mean, where, where do you stand on soil science and herbicides and some of the synthetics that are available and you know i mean it just i don't know again this is the feeling and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm speaking unscientifically it just like it's almost like an intuitive thing that if you're putting s something that kills plants in a vineyard it 
there's a inherent contradiction in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, vitality uh, for the vines. Um, is that just an unscientific outsider's opinion, or you know, what? Let's talk about that. Yeah, nope. I think um, I tend to agree with you. Of course, not everybody does. Um, right. And there, there are so many different herbicides that you can use. You know, you can put a pre-emergent down that will. Um, go essentially on bare soil and will uh, make it so that no no green pops out um, in that soil. So none of your seeds are going to germinate. You can put down something that would be a contact that you're killing anything that's green on the soil surface right now, but any seeds that are maybe in the seed bank will germinate the next chance that they get with the next rain. Um, and you can do these things in the spring or in the fall, some of the pre-emergence in the winter, you know, getting ready for the spring. And so there, there are lots of different herbicides to use that people use in different situations, each one of them, you know, having an impact on soil life. Because like you said, you can't put something down that's going to kill um, things, especially contacts, and just want to keep some of the good stuff behind. You know, you're, you're kind of getting rid of all of it. And so the same is true of under the vine row cultivation. When we're running that blade that you described underneath the vine row, we're killing everything down there and sometimes vines also. So everything that we use has an impact on the rest of the soil life. You know, we're, we're damaging the soil structure when we run that under the vine row cultivator through. So trying to decide which one's worse is sometimes a tough decision. So, you know, with the under the vine row cultivator, you have to run your big tractor. Um, you're running it usually at a time when the ground is really wet. And so you're causing a lot of compaction. Um, when you're spraying an herbicide, you're running a little ATV around, you can do it twice or three times as fast as you can do the under the vine row cultivator. So the the impacts are are, are different, but they're significant with all of them not doing anything at all. Um, you know, in some cases when you have older vines that have nice deep roots and your vines are healthy can be just fine where you don't spray your herbicide and, and kill the weeds and you don't run an under the vine row cultivator to kill the weeds. But if you're trying to grow a young vineyard and the vines need to have, you know, some free soil, bare soil around them so that they're not um, compromised, you have to choose your choose your poison, as you may, <laughs> right, you know, right. as you say. So one of those things is going to have to be done, or you put a lot of people on it and you do some hand hoeing around the vines, and right. you know the impact on people is significant, and the number of people that we have able to do some of these jobs is also decreasing. And so there is no one real proper answer to the question because there are so many. Um, Trade-offs so and variables. Yeah. And yep, there's so many variables. Compromises. Yeah. Yep, yep. That you just have to choose one, and I think there's no real one right answer. There are right answers in different situations um, for different people, and so I, without you know, without trying to be um, make the decision for everybody. You know, I think everybody has to make their own decision for themselves at that time and try to figure out how they're going to have the least impact on those around them, including the soil life, um, you know, and doing 
research and finding out what's going to be the right thing in that situation. Because if you have a field full of morning glory and you know you're going to run an in-row cultivator through and just spread it around and cause the problem to be bigger and bigger and bigger, you're probably right. not doing good things for your place. And so how do you have the best impact on your place at that mm. time? And it's going to be different with every decision. You know, every every decision is going to be have a different answer. Is there, so you're saying that might be a situation where you'd want to use an you herbicide. You might need to spray it. Mm-hmm. You is might the, need is to there spray an it. alternative to that where you introduce competitive plants that would prevent it, like not obviously get rid of the morning glory, but uh, sort of find a balance in the vineyard where you have tons of other things in, in, in addition to the morning glory? Or is there, that... Yep. No, I think you're right. And usually when you end up in a situation like what I'm talking about, when you have morning glory and you feel like you've come to a place where you need to spray it, it's because it's gotten out of control, right? And if it's gotten out of control, it means you took your eye off the ball for a minute and you weren't paying attention and something happened. So there are always reasons, you know, there are consequences to us getting busier and missing something, you know, and yeah. and and then you have to deal with it later. But yeah, I think you're right. When you're paying close attention and when you're trying to prevent these future issues because you can see that it could come at you and you have a really varied, beautiful cover crop or or planting that you've had planted for a while. And like this year, we had a huge outbreak of slugs in our vineyard. And I have one vineyard where I bought a really lovely organic cover crop and it germinated and the slugs ate it all and if you were to go out there today it's just brown soil you would think i sprayed herbicide on the whole thing but the slugs have eaten every green thing in sight and so we just sometimes think we have control over a situation and then something like that happens and we don't i'm i'm i just discovered slugs in our front yard vineyard as well Ah. they're kind of perfect they're keeping it in check because we have these huge sort of like daikon and other things that are growing and just just as they're getting to be like you know up into the vines all of a sudden they're they're withering back and you can see that the slugs are just chewing chewing Mm -hmm. them down and i'm like oh this is perfect i don't need to bring in the sheep (laughs) i love it (laughs) yeah Uh, and then, yeah, I was thinking we have a lot of feral cats down here. We should just ship them up there for your vole issue. We could that would be you know, wonderful. L A. We would just release our feral cats into Oregon wine country, and boom, done. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the slugs, I've imagined, and actually, I think was suggested by someone to just get ducks. And the site yeah, that I'm thinking heard, of is yeah, 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 close to 200 acres. I'm like, how many ducks does it take? Keep the slugs on 200 acres i don't even know <laughs> but you need to get those indian runner ducks that are like exactly. fast they'll cover that 200 acres like <laughs> boom <laughs> i would love to see it <laughs> um it's well and, and that's what i was gonna i mean all joking aside it does sound like there are really great organic options on smaller scales and yes. with higher with with a lot more labor intensity um, yep. and, and then when you scale up, you know, then we're looking at like compromises and extreme costs and, and great. If you have the luxury of that kind of money and time and labor force, these are great options. There's the better option, but if you don't, you know, and if you, if, if money making money actually matters to you, then you have to make hard choices, um, at some, sometimes in certain yep. cases, especially at the larger scale. Yep. Um, 
is there a way around that? Like, I mean, do you think we should maybe not have massive monoculture farms or is that just unrealistic given, you know, the scale of the populations that we need to supply with wine and food and things like that? Or, you know, is there a way to break things up into smaller units that, you know, is there a way to get more people involved in agriculture? I mean, I'm just curious if you have any solution thoughts to some of these. Gosh, it's such a good question. And I think I can come at it from a couple of different places. You know, I think the more of this kind of stuff that we want to do and paying attention to, um, you know, having the, the lowest impact possible from an environmental perspective onto our sites, the more input it takes, you know, the stuff that we're talking about and right. not joking, more hands you know, have to be involved, right? more hands have to be involved. And when more hands are involved, the costs go up. Right. So, you know, if people are willing to pay more for organic wine and pay more for organic fruit, which we very rarely see, um, right. you know, people are wanting organics or um, live certified fruit, but they don't want to pay a premium for it, then we have a problem, right? Because it's always going to be more expensive to do the lower impact task. Right. Um, so I think that's number, you know, that's that coming at it from one way. Um, I think, too, just having the resources to do side-by-side -side trials and look at some of these things to look at, okay, um, I want to try an organic herbicide, you know, whether it was Weed Slayer last year or Suppress or some of the others um, next to an in-row cultivator, but I don't want to buy the in-row cultivator do we have custom farmers who will just come around with an in-row cultivator and cultivate your six acres for you so you don't have to buy a $20,000 piece of equipment? You know, that kind of stuff. I think build, build up that sharing of equipment so that we're all able to use things, which, you know, at Results Partners, we do. We have pieces of equipment that we run on lots of different people's farms, and that means that people don't have to go out and buy those expensive things, which I think is a great benefit. And then they can choose this year, you know, and maybe the right thing is to rotate a lot of these different ideas. It's the true idea of integrated pest management, right? You're not doing just one thing every year the same or all year long the same. You're rotating different modes of action, whether it be an organic herbicide or maybe in the situation that we were talking about, you know, if there's a big blow up of field bindweed or something, you're using something a little bit stronger, a, a, conventional herbicide once, but then you're going back to, okay, now I'm going to run my in-row cultivator through because I can do that and not cause even a bigger problem. And so you're rotating your modes of action, which might bring the perfect balance in that situation. So I think just keeping an open mind, but being able to also have the resources either with our extension agents at the university or other researchers who are able to help us practically decide you know, what things in which situations will work? What tools are there available to us that will be beneficial? Yeah. It also sounds like you're making a case for not getting certified because <laughs> that would definitely tie your hands in terms of, you know, having a, a, a broad spectrum approach to some of these issues, right? You're, you're right. I, it does sound like I'm saying that. And I guess I can sort of speak speaking out of both sides of my mouth because I like the idea of getting certified because it helps bolster this organizations that are certifying, you know, that are bringing things to the front of people's minds 
and yeah. being certified organic means that they then have money to do marketing and explain the idea of what organic is to people and create a better um, educational platform for people who are new to organics, who want to understand more about that farming and really bring more people into it. I think it's really important to be certified in that way. But but you're right. If I'm talking about rotating things. That's not in a certified. <laughs> that's not in a certified site. So that would lose you your certification. <laughs> no. Yep. Very fast. Yep. Very fast. So, <laughs> so I think you know it. It depends maybe how committed you are, or maybe where you are in the um, in your timeline of being an organic farmer. And I think at the beginning, it's great to leave your options open so you can understand what the different implications are. And I think being able to learn, especially if you're a small farmer, being able to learn what's going to work on your site and figure out, okay, I'm choosing to not use herbicides anymore. How am I going to manage the weeds on my six acres? You know, who do I know that has an under the vine row cultivator that I could rent for a couple of days who could drive it for me? Because it's kind of a... Um, tricky piece of equipment to learn how to run without, you know, removing some vines inadvertently. So just being able to figure out what the what the path forward is, and maybe even a six acre vineyard is not the right number to talk about. It's like, okay, get to 12 acres. You still can't afford to buy the piece of equipment, but it's definitely too big for you to go out and hand hoe by yourself. Right. So, you know, how do you do that? And I think you need a good support system around you. You need a good, um, a good group of people who you can get together with once a month and sit around over a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and talk about how are you doing it? Cause I don't know how to do it. <laughs> you know, I don't know how to do yeah. this. And, and we, I think all need that whether we're organic farmers or not, because that's how we get smarter. Well, so that sounds like a good segue to maybe wrap this up. Do you have any suggestions of resources where people could start to, make those connections with other people and learn more and, you know, also get in touch with you or learn more about what you're doing or yeah. you know, avail themselves of your, your services or your wine. <laughs> Any yeah. of the above, all, the above. <laughs> all of the above. You know, I think first and foremost is finding people who are thinking like you in your local area that you can get together with because, you know, your climate, your region, um, your varieties that you're growing are all going to be particular to the the answers to some of the questions that you might have. So finding people who are in your who are in your local area, I think, is really important. There are so many great podcasts, and you know, like yours. There are so many others that you can get on and listen to people talking about the very things that you might have questions about, and you can peruse the list and and just see what's interesting to you right now, because today you might be thinking about herbicides and tomorrow it might be something totally different, you know, to do with, oh, what what's the next cool variety that I should plant? You know, everybody's planting Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. What should I be planting so that I can stand out from the crowd? Um, right. You know, there are all sorts of questions that we have depending on the day of the week um, that I think having, having a a group of people or a resource that you know how to find on the web, you know, whether it's the vineyard team and their podcasts, which are very practical, or it's looking at your local or even, you know, OSU or Cornell's website. And they have great resources right there on their websites for what, um, you know, the pesticide and disease handbooks, UC Davis, 
you know, tons yeah. of great resources from these researchers that often, especially now, are easy to access, you know, in virtual um, virtual meetings all the time. I mean, you could spend every day, all day listening to virtual meetings on your computer these days, it, it seems. So we have a really great variety of um, research available to us yeah. on a moment's notice, should we want. Google, it's so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, how do people find out more about what you're doing or avail themselves yeah. of your services or, or find your wine? Thanks for asking. Yeah, so um, our wines at Dominio, Dominio Wines is our website. And we, you know, we have our two little farms. We've got a beautiful farmhouse um, and barn where we do tastings. And my husband has actually come up with a really cool, interesting, different way of tasting wine. And this was the way he's always tasted in his notebook is visually. And so he draws shapes for the way a wine tastes. And it's oh. called shape tasting. Um, I love that. I've heard yeah, that. yeah, it's really interesting. And so it's the way he always tasted wine. And some of our friends said, um, "You need to show other people that because it's really cool." And so he does some of his labels have the shape tastings on the front of them, and and so they're just interesting, nice educational you know, tastings that we do in our barn where Patrick can lead you through a shape tasting and kind of like, what does it mean to him? And, and it just changes the vocabulary. You know, I think a lot of people get nervous talking about wine because they don't have the right vocabulary for it. And this sort of removes that vocabulary. I suppose it adds a different one because it's drawing, which is intimidating, but, um, but a lot of people look at these drawings and say, I get the way that wine is supposed to taste it so different from you telling me that it's blueberries and blackberries and tobacco. And I, I get it now because that wasn't part of my vocabulary. So mm. anyway, that all to say that, you know, we, we love inviting people onto the farm to come and see what we're doing, see our process of, you know, where we are in, in organic transition out at our farm and we have hazelnuts and cherries and grapes and, um, and actually and, and, a, a vineyard block planted into the, a labyrinth. <laughs> Oh, I saw that. Yeah. I'm at that, that, yes. Uh, that's very cool. And it, also in a post-pandemic world, people can actually stay in one of your farms, right? There's that's a right. Rent. Yep. Okay, cool. Out in the Columbia Gorge. Yep. Out in the Columbia Lovely. Gorge. Well, yes. Sign so me there, up for a few months from now. <laughs> exactly. It's a wonderful, very relaxing place to go. So that or through Results Partners, you know, you can always find me and connect with me there. And I love to go visit people's vineyards and talk about farming and just, you know, give any insights that I might have into what you're doing and, and welcome learning about everybody else's different ways of farming their properties also. So you can find me there anytime. Great. Well, thanks so much, Lee. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate you being candid and honest and scientific about answering a lot of these difficult questions for organic and biodynamic. It's, uh, it's really, it's like I said, I think we have to look at these with open eyes and, and, and honesty if we ever want to move forward. So Absolutely I really appreciate agree. you doing that and helping with that. Oh, you're to, welcome. Thanks so much for coming on. It's really great to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed my time with you. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Lee Bartholomew as much as I did. And if so, please go to our website and sign up for our email list. 
Our website is centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. Thanks. 